Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You know, I, for one, have been saying for years that Ben Wittes is a threat to Homeland Security. And I, for one, am happy to be vindicated in that assertion. I mean, not just Homeland Security, international security, really. So powerful and dangerous are his tweets. The tweets are, in a sense, like a weapon of mass destruction. I'm just pissed off, though, because all these years I've been kind of building up lawfare as a elaborate cover for my role as the secret head of Antifa. And all of this was blown by two you know, five or six page DHS intelligence reports. They are on to you. They, they are. They have ferreted out the truth and all of Ben's claims to be a handmaiden of the national security state. Well, that was just a ruse. People busted. You thought it was the security theater, but the truth will out. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Dangerous Tweets edition. I am Shane Harris. Uh, I have never directly had my tweet written up in a Homeland Security Intelligence report. But not I guess... that you know of. <laughs> I know of. Although, although one of Ben's naughty tweets mentioned me, so I guess I'm incidental collection to you, Ben. Yeah, that's U.S. person Shane Harris. <laughs> Did you notice I also referred to U.S. purse lawfare blog? U.S. purse lawfare blog is can, can lawfare be a <laughs> this U.S. Is true. person? Yes, this is like a little understood thing. Whenever people are looking at like the um, the annual numbers, a U.S. person includes a U.S. entity, a U.S. company, um, and so yeah, like you know, American Airlines is a U.S. person, and it shows up as you know, redacted U.S. person. Right. What about uh, my dog? Is my dog a U.S. person? It's US a U.S. Dog. a U.S. canine, I believe, is the technical <laughs> intelligence term. Um, and then there's a paw print instead of a black bar to redact Nice. <laughs> nice. I like that. Well, it's good for consistency. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my friends in their respective studios, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello, everybody. Hi. And just, you know, announcement, people, the remote jungle studio will remain remote through January right. 4th at least. That's correct. Yeah. We got that word this week, right? That Brookings will not be open for business until at least the 4th of January. That's correct. Well, you know, we, we you know, why, why mess with a good thing where everyone's enjoying sitting here in their shorts and uh, with their microphones? Like, this is bliss, right? right. Oh, yeah. Right. It's going oh, yeah. great. So good. So good. <laughs> it should always be like this forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, on the podcast this week, the Homeland Security Department, you remember them, compiles intelligence reports, which I do have to put in quotes, on protesters and journalists, including the tweets of our own Ben Wittes. In a story broken by our own Shane Harris. Yeah, well, we'll get to all that. Uh, massive explosions in Beirut compound that country's political and economic crises. And officials are increasingly warning about foreign interference in November's election. All right, let's get right to it, uh, Ben, with your dangerous tweets. Uh, I will quickly (laughs) sum up for people who haven't been following this and wonder what the hell we've been talking about the past five minutes. But week before last, I believe it was, uh, Ben, you had a couple of tweets in which you uh, disseminated, I guess to use the term, uh, internal DHS uh, documents, including uh, an email and including a memo from the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis, formerly uh, Brian Murphy, that were basically it, in res- it generated, I guess, in response to a piece that you had done with Steve Vladek 
on the expansion of DHS authorities to monitor protesters who were threats to monuments and statues. And we talked about this previously on the podcast. Uh, So essentially, you ended up tweeting out both uh, an email castigating people for leaking, which is always hilarious when the leaks are about to leak, uh, as well as this memo from Brian Murphy, in which he talked about implementing, I think, safe to say, a more expansive uh, definition or terminology that they were going to use to apply to protesters. Uh, The following week, then I was contacted by a source who had copies of these aforementioned intelligence reports. They're called Open Source Intelligence Reports, or OSIRs. They are unclassified uh, and traditionally disseminated to law enforcement agencies, state and local governments, tribal governments, and can even go out to our Five Eyes partners. Uh, And two of these reports concerned Ben's tweets and wrote them up with sort of intelligence lingo and referring to, as we've talked about, U.S. persons, et cetera, summarizing the tweets, and then actually screenshotting the tweets themselves. Uh, And there was another similar report uh, about a a journalist at the New York Times uh, as well. So Susan, I want to go to you on this. Um, for those who haven't been following along, the, the reaction to this story uh, that I broke last week was pretty swift. Uh, uh, Under Secretary, Secretary, Acting Secretary Chad Wolf came out and said, we're not doing this. Stop collecting on journalists. Brian Murphy, the guy who ran the office, has been reassigned to an administrative position. Talk to us about why it is so concerning that Homeland Security is compiling reports like this about people's tweets. Because after all, anyone can go on Twitter and read Ben's feed. Uh, So why is this a problem? Yeah, so I think the way to understand why it's a problem and the kind of problem that would would cause DHS to take immediate corrective action when it came out um, is to understand what wouldn't have been a problem, right? So whenever we first sort of heard about this, my instinct was, well, I, I was like, I was kind of skeptical, like there, that there must have been some kind of wires crossed here, and that yeah, maybe the tweets were shared as part of like a public relations office, right? Sometimes they might. Say it out and say, hey, here's what people are talking about in the news. Here's some relevant media coverage. Maybe something limited to a a part of a leak investigation, obviously not classified, but uh, some sort of administrative investigation into where leaks were coming from. Um, But the idea that this would be an intelligence report, um, I just kind of in the back of my mind really thought like that's not possible. Um, Until I got to the bottom of your story in the original story, Shane, um, in which DHS confirmed and defended uh, sort of in their first response, right. uh, their activity. Um, and it, and now we've uh, actually seen the, the intelligence reports themselves. And that's exactly what they are. This is actual intelligence reporting. Um, yes, from open source sources, but collected, compiled and disseminated about the activity of two journalists that is entirely unrelated to any articulable mission within DHS and most concerning appears to have been collected and disseminated solely on the basis of activity protected by the First Amendment, which is plainly forbidden under the rules. And so in addition to all kinds of questions about why something like this would have operational value, the lack of judgment of the individuals who would sign off on something like that, um, I think the core concern here is If DHS is not abiding by its own internal rules on something like this, what else is happening? What other intelligence collection or dissemination are they engaged in as it relates, for example, to protests against DHS activity or uh, the Trump administration generally, in which it is also not complying with rules designed to protect the civil liberties and constitutional rights of U.S. citizens and U.S. persons. Um, and so I think this is the kind of thing where um, it's it might be easy to sort of laugh it off as we did at the in, in the beginning as it being sort of um, just absurd and comically absurd. But it, it actually does sort of um, suggest something far more nefarious going on and, and something that I do think should be uh, cause for concern and also the, the basis for internal investigation and, and uh, an investigation by the inspector general more broadly of um, if they're playing this fast and loose with rules that are not all that complicated or difficult to understand or apply, um, what else is going on that uh, the American public should be really, really worried about? 
Ben, let me ask you, you know, build on what Susan said, but sort of following her formulation too. What did you think when you first heard about this, which was when I actually called you up to, to let you know that, that I had these reports and that I was going to be writing about them? Yeah. So uh, candidly, when I woke up that morning and saw a text from you saying you needed to talk to me about some material that concerned me, my my first reaction was that it was some kind of prank. And then... <laughs> it's good to know I can get you that easily. <laughs> and when I got you on the phone and it was clear that you weren't joking, I was perplexed because like Susan... I started with the assumption that, you know, entities, government entities are allowed to collect their press clippings. And my Twitter feed goes out to 400,000 people a day uh, every time I tweet. And so, you know, I thought of it like, well, you know, the the Defense Department has the early bird press clipping service and the Justice Department, you know, does the attorney general's press summary every day, or at least used to. Uh, and nobody thinks there's anything wrong with that. So if people at DHS want to pass around my tweets, that's fine. Um, but then the more you described it, the more it sounded like it really was intelligence work product. And so I was really perplexed by that because I you know, know enough about the intelligence gathering rules to know that you're not allowed to collect without some collection priority or mission that justifies the collection. And then as I, you know, looked at DHS's, I had recently looked at DHS's collection guidelines because I had written that piece with Steve Vladek, which was essentially about adding one, which was monument protection to that list of guidelines. And I, I so I went back to it and I looked at it and I said, you know, if this is really intelligence work product, I don't see how it's proper. And that was the issue that Susan and I were batting around that she was skeptical about. But I, you know, as the story came out and then when I saw the the documents themselves, it's very clear that this is formulated as an intelligence work product. And, and you know, you're not allowed to collect even open source intelligence just for the sake of monitoring people. Tammy. Yeah, I so obviously this was surprising and maybe not so fun, but I think that it's also interesting what we have learned about it since Shane you broke this news, which is number 1 that it turns out it wasn't just Ben and another journalist who were engaged in civil liberties protected activity and were subject of these DHS intelligence reports. There were also some protesters, people planning protest activity that were subject to this. And then we learned from Politico that one reason this may have happened, that they did something that both that all of you recognized immediately as improper, is because the deputy secretary of DHS, Ken Cuccinelli, authorized taking the civil rights office in DHS out of the loop of the process of preparing these reports and disseminating these reports. They're supposed to have this internal check and they made an affirmative decision to get rid of it. And I think all of this goes to, you know, a couple of themes that we've been talking about repeatedly as since protests started at the beginning of June and as the role of DHS has become more prominent, which is that there's a cultural problem here, but this is also an agency that has been denuded of senior leadership other than people who are entirely subservient to the president's political interests. And that has allowed uh, the waiving of rules and procedures and constraints that are designed to keep DHS or any law enforcement agency from becoming an instrument of the president's political will. And it's all directed at facilitating the DHS becoming an instrument of the president's political will. And, you know, to me, what's troubling about this is that it happened. It's wonderful that that good journalism got the news out and sort of shamed DHS into reversing these specific policies. But our oversight mechanism for this is broken. There's no obvious way to remedy this until we have an executive branch and a legislative branch that are both willing to take these constraints seriously. And, and so I guess I'm, 
I'm upset not just that it happened, but I'm pessimistic about our ability to prevent it from happening in the future. And I guess if any of the three of you have a reason why I shouldn't be so pessimistic, I would love to hear it. Well, I want to ask a question that might get at some of that answer. And Tammy rightly points out, you know, there was a, a second story that I wrote after the, the story about the tweets about journalists that showed an, uh, one of these intelligence reports had captured a Telegram chat uh, of protesters who were, you know, not only were they not talking about attacking buildings or attacking the police, they were talking about how to take protest march routes that avoided the police. Now, whether Homeland Security thought that that was in support of some attack on a federal facility, it doesn't say that explicitly. In fact, it you know it kind of explicitly leaves that out, which is interesting. But it kind of raised in my mind the question, and particularly since the head of this office, Brian Murphy, was so quickly removed, uh, and he kind of has some of his his own history of uh, kind of hot headedness and, and and stubborn behavior, and when he was an FBI agent. Uh, but it raised the question for me. And maybe we don't know this but yet, but should we be reading this as a sort of aberration of one particular office within a department and maybe even on one particular mission in Portland as having gone too far? Or does this point to something much broader of a culture at the Homeland Security Department that is dysfunctional and, and illustrates a department that has gone far afield from its original mission, which was, of course, to largely protect the United States from terrorist attacks. Yeah, so I'll take a shot at, at sort of speculating on the answer to that. And I think we have to be clear that this is just speculation. Um, look, there is a reason to believe that had the journalist in question not been Ben, uh, who has a lot of ties and credibility within the national security community and the executive branch uh, sort of components of the national security community, and a reporter at a big established publication like the New York Times, um, that it might not have been leaked at all, um, and that it might not have garnered the same sort of outrage. And so whenever we think about, like, is this an isolated incident, or is it something more systemic, the fact that it was directed at two pretty established figures um, is a reason to believe maybe more is going on and there are fewer protections for less established individuals. Um, I also think what we're seeing is a little bit of the overall mission creep that occurs when everybody understands that they are pursuing pretextual legal authorities and that DHS doesn't really believe that they are deployed there in order to protect federal buildings and federal property. And we've seen this in, in a lot of different contexts. But, you know, when the administration is putting out just sort of legal rationales and justification that don't pass the smell test, um, you know, the officials carrying that mission out, they get that message, too. And so um, what ends up happening is a loosening generally, because if you were actually really, really focused on protecting federal buildings and understood that to be your very, very legitimate and narrow mission, um, you wouldn't put tweets like this into an intelligence report. But whenever you kind of get through the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and just general atmospherics that, no, this is about something else. This is about responding to these protests generally, um, sort of on behalf of the administration, um, then that clarity and judgment becomes, I think, harder to exercise and, and you end up with activity like this. All right. Ben, did you want to have any final thoughts? Yeah, quick thought. Um, I think there's a lot of reason to believe there is a larger culture of uh, dysfunction at DHS with respect to this and that, you know, some of the fears going into the Trump administration that people had about CIA and NSA, uh, which have not come to fruition, have actually come to fruition about elements of DHS. So let me just pick off a few things that we know are happening. One, there have been incidents where, first of all, the largest law enforcement agency in the country, uh, which was designed to protect the border, is being used for crowd control in uh, urban areas and is being used uh, in camouflage and fatigues and driving around unmarked vehicles and detaining people without identifying themselves. That's pretty extraordinary. Secondly, uh, it is very clear that there has been, you know, 
the, the gravamen of Steve Laddick and my original story was that they have authorized precisely the kind of activity uh, with respect to protesters who potentially pose a threat to monuments that they engaged in with respect to me. So I'm willing to believe that Mike Baker and I may be the only professional journalists or writers who this happened to, perhaps. But I do think the principal First Amendment activity that's being threatened here is not journalism. It's the right to protest. And we know that's going on. Third, I believe uh, um, that there has been a certain amount of telephone exploitation. That is when, and I think the story that, that Shane wrote where uh, you know, had telegram conversations uh, is an example, probably an example of that, that they have deployed teams that are capable of exploiting phones and uh, getting a lot of data from phones uh, when they're, uh, you know, to Portland and they are actually, when they, you know, come across people, they're uh, doing a certain amount of that. I don't quite understand of that, but I'm pretty sure it's happening. And then fourth, I'm also pretty confident that there's uh, been uh, acquisition of public record data from data brokers. And I think when you put those big themes together, it is worth asking the question, when did we ever decide as a society that the Department of Homeland Security was going to play this kind of role in our national life? Well, to be continued, I'm sure. Let's transition now to uh, another uh, developing story, to be sure, but really uh, rather <clears throat> kind of horrifying and spectacular images coming out of Beirut. Uh, no doubt listeners have seen uh, video of this just extraordinary explosion at a facility uh, on the waterfront, I guess, or really right there in Beirut's port. It's it, it, there is a huge mushroom cloud that went up over the city. At least a hundred people are dead. Uh, just massive devastation in the blast area uh, from this explosion. Uh, I know some of our colleagues actually. I think there may even be homeless right now. Uh, and I know I have friends over there uh, as well who uh, have family members who were injured. This has been a pretty shocking event. Tammy, give us a sense of the moment here in which this is happening. I mean, Beirut is facing political crises, economic catastrophe. Uh, oh, by the way, there's a pandemic. Give, talk to us about the things that are happening uh, there right now in the country as this uh, uh, really devastating thing kind of compounds all of that. Yeah, Shane, I I have to say, as someone who's visited Beirut a bunch of times and has a lot of friends there, it it's been a really really tough twenty four hours um, watching this unfold and and uh, just devastating for the people of Beirut and of Lebanon. And as you said, this comes in the wake of just a layered series of crises. This is a country that suffered 15 years of brutal civil war, Syrian occupation, Israeli occupation, Israeli reinvasion, and uh, more recently, a severe political crisis that led to mass protests that started last fall, the fall of a government, and the collapse of the economy while Lebanon is hosting uh, about a million refugees from Syria. So the, the population of Lebanon itself is only about 4 million. And so, you know, they've added an additional uh, 25% to that uh, in terms of Syrian refugees. And so it was already a city, Beirut, where a lot of people were, were out of work. Um, a lot of people were having trouble paying their rent. Uh, or buying food, there was hyperinflation of the of the Lebanese currency, and and so prices for basic goods were skyrocketing. And you know, I was already hearing horrific stories about families um, scraping to get by and uh, and crime sprees of people who were just trying to get diapers for their babies or food for their kids. And now. This isn't just the main port of the country, which is situated in the middle of downtown Beirut, right on the coast, but it was also the main storage for Lebanon's grain imports, which 
it is 75%, I think, of Lebanon's food is imported. Grain is a huge proportion of that. And the grain silo was right next to the warehouse full of fertilizer that exploded. So all of Lebanon's stored grain was either incinerated or contaminated by this explosion. And the other major port in Tripoli doesn't have a grain storage facility. So the food insecurity, which was already severe, is going to become that much more severe. The question, I think, on the table is how well um, will the international community respond to this severe crisis in Lebanon um, before this explosion the IMF and World Bank were in intensive discussions with the interim Lebanese government about a heavily conditioned assistance package that would require the Lebanese government to engage in all kinds of really tough economic reforms to cut down on corruption and patronage and the sort of sectarian patronage that is um, the main flow of power through Lebanon's political system. Are they going to stick to those conditions in the face of this dire crisis with 300,000 homeless people? Or is there going to be some kind of international kind of coalition that will put a lot of support on the table, but along with it, a plan for real political and economic change, which is what the Lebanese protesters have been demanding? And then the other big piece of this And the reason why this explosion caused such tension and even some really irresponsible conspiracy theories is that it came just days before the international tribunal trying four suspects um, for the assassination of Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. That verdict was supposed to be delivered on Friday. And so everyone's thoughts immediately went to whether this was some kind of effort to preempt or pressure the outcome of that trial. The verdict now has been postponed until next Tuesday, and I don't think that this will change the outcome, but uh, it just reveals how much trauma and how much tension uh, Lebanon is already living with. Ben? Yeah, I, I, uh, one of the things that I found very striking about this is how quickly, how many people leapt, how irresponsibly to the precise, sometimes they were conspiracy theories, sometimes they were just theories of what happened in a fashion that uh, exactly comported to their pre-existing political preferences. And so, you know, a whole bunch of people in the Arab world speculated, like within literally minutes of the blast that this was an Israeli airstrike. A whole bunch of people in Israel and in the pro-Israel community in the United States immediately started asserting that this was a Hezbollah weapons depot. Both of those claims, by the way, are reasonably plausible. And in fact, they're not inconsistent with one another, but both turn out to be wrong. And The president of the United States looked at the video and says, looks like a bomb to me, didn't wait for his intelligence assessments to come in. And, you know, it actually didn't take long to find out what had really happened here, which appears to have been that a couple of thousand tons of ammonium nitrate, two tons of which uh, produced the Oklahoma City bombing, had been sitting essentially unattended in this harbor for, you know, eight or nine years. And a a fire seems to have touched it off. Now that is a, you know, an almost mind-bogglingly reckless uh, set of acts by some combination of people. Um, And it's a creature of uh, how unfortunately bad Lebanon's government and regulatory structures are that something like that could happen. But, you know, it should be a lesson to people when something goes boom, even if it has a mushroom cloud and it kind of looks like a nuke, you know, don't be quick to announce what happened before you have any idea what happened. And this is a a, a genuinely horrifying uh, tragedy, but it actually seems to be a creature of negligence and bad governance, not a creature of any of the many groups with guns in that region. 
Yeah, and one of the sort of um, interesting and unfortunate things that I think um, tend to drive this desire to try and capture the narrative quickly is because of the way the narrative about what occurred will ultimately relate to what I think was Tammy's core question, which is in the midst of a sort of spiraling global crisis, um, when there is a dramatic and acute need for foreign aid, um, who gets help and when? Um, And the nature of how we understand what occurred here and the nature of the responsibility and the degree to which the narrative is um, useful to individuals who uh, make decisions about how to provide that foreign aid and, and support, uh, certainly within the United States, but also uh, you know, around the world. I, I suspect that um, in addition to just Twitter being a pretty irresponsible place, um, the rush to attempt to capture the early narrative um, is also connected in a reflection of the, the degree to which those questions and the ultimate outcome of whether and how the rest of the world steps in at this point, that the, those really are two linked propositions. Susan, I think that's a great point. And indeed, there may be a lot of that going on in this particular instance, because, you know, this explosion came as the Trump administration continues to squeeze Iran with economic sanctions, Hezbollah, of course, which as of January has essentially controlled the government of Lebanon. And and so Congress has been debating Uh, whether and in what ways to continue its assistance to the Lebanese armed forces. The Lebanese armed forces have been one of the only sort of non-sectarian institutions in the Lebanese government, uh, and the U.S. has done a lot of work with them over the years on border security and counterterrorism. They've been actually pretty good at uh, fighting Salafi uh, Sunni terrorism in Lebanon. But those who want the sort of maximum pressure on Iran and its allies have been making a big push, even just this week, right before this explosion, to cut off that assistance. And so you're right that there are a lot of people with prior commitments that want to use this to, in a way that might strengthen their case. Um, but the bottom line is that I think it's actually going to be much harder for Congress to just cut off aid to any part of Lebanon in the current circumstances. Among other things, there is a fairly decent-sized Lebanese diaspora in the United States, and some of it is concentrated in important electoral places like Michigan. So um, I, I think we'll probably see Congress at least continue U.S. assistance to Lebanon this year, and then we can have the fight again next year. Well, speaking of Congress and important electoral districts, uh, the lights are blinking red yet again, it looks like, ahead of November's election. Uh, Susan, there was an interesting story the other day in Politico uh, that Speaker Pelosi and other top Democrats chastised the top counterintelligence official, Bill Evanina, who has sort of become the point person on election security threats and on briefing members of Congress. Uh, saying that he is keeping Americans in the dark about details of Russia's continued interference in the 2020 cycle. Uh, Pelosi hinted at this after she came out of a briefing on Friday, uh, saying that she thought the administration was, quote, withholding her word, evidence of foreign election meddling. I think it comes as no surprise to anyone, at least it shouldn't, that the Russians are up to this again four years after their 2016 interference. And of course, we already know that the IC believes that they have uh, developed a preference for Trump. So what possible explanation could there be now for someone in Evanina's position and others not being entirely forthcoming with members of Congress if we're to take them at their word that they think he's holding out on them? Yeah, so I think there's a few layers of things that are happening right now. Um, so what if we think, so Bill Avenina has a, um, you know, is a, a career intelligence official, um, and I think is sort of broadly respected within the field. And so um, not someone who's perceived to be a, sort of a Trumpist or a, or a political actor. Um, that said, I think this shows, um, if listeners recall the sort of debacle that occurred after uh, Shelby Pearson, who was uh, previously leading the intelligence community's uh, sort of 
counter-election interference efforts, uh, gave a briefing that was deemed as too aggressive, right, that her name sort of ended up getting dragged through the mud um, because they believed she'd been too forward-leaning. Republicans believed she'd been too forward-leaning in assigning particular types of blame. And so I think this is the inevitable chilling effect of things like that, that um, everybody in government recognizes that if you give a fully candid account of what's going on, um, and it's politically inconvenient to the to the president or to Republicans, um, you will pay a professional price for that. And I, I think that's really uh, it's really unfortunate to see that uh, taking effect. That said, you know, th- there's a tougher question sort of at the heart of this, which is um, Pelosi says that there is a specific intelligence she thinks that the intelligence community can share with the public that isn't going to imperil sources and methods. Obviously, this is an area in which anytime we're talking about classified information, um, the executive branch and the president really gets to control what comes out to the public, at least in terms of formal confirmation. Um, But one sort of difficult question right now is, um, it's no surprise whatsoever that the Russians would be interfering again. Um, And it's not really a surprise that the the Trump administration would not be entirely forthcoming about what's going on. What is a harder question to answer is, what sorts of information would we expect the intelligence community to make public that would actually help us counter this threat? So post-2016, there was a lot of sort of, uh, you know, finger pointing and uh, and post-mortems based on this idea that if only the U.S. government had shared more, and, and that took the form of shared more with uh, social media platforms uh, regarding the nature of uh, disinformation campaigns that were being used, uh, being launched on Facebook and Twitter, um, and also had shared more information with the American public about sort of hacking and dumping operations so that uh, the media could better contextualize uh, what ended up being actually the most significant uh, element of that operation, of the Russian operation, which is, of course, the hacking and dumping of democratic emails. Um, This is a moment in which I think we have to, there's always going to be sort of this this desire, uh, certainly by Democrats in Congress, to just say, we want more information. They aren't telling us enough. They aren't telling us enough because, of course, that's um, politically damaging to the president. Um, it's in keeping with sort of this bizarre affection for uh, for Vladimir Putin and Russia generally, um, his, his unwillingness to uh, preference the national security of the United States over his personal electoral prospects. But whenever we actually think about this sort of as a security matter um, and want to answer the question, what is the information that we want the public to know? Um, and what would actionable information look like? What would information that would wouldn't just serve as a basis for its own interesting story, but actually allow the the American electorate to better understand and synthesize and comprehend uh, foreign interference so they could uh, have more confidence in in, in the election overall. Um, That's actually a really, really difficult question to answer. And and it's certainly an exceptionally difficult question to answer sort of in the context of congressional leaks of information. Um, So yeah, really, disturbing and alarming to see so many people getting more and more agitated, really warning us, hey, this stuff is happening again. You know, but but I think those those um, those deeper questions of what do we really want to see happen right now? Those are far more difficult to answer. So a couple thoughts. Um, you can't uh, obviously, unless they're prepared to release some of this information, you can't know for sure what sort of stuff it is. But by process of elimination, I think you can narrow it down uh, to some broad categories. So it's clearly not a hacking and dumping operation like we saw in 2016. And we know that because we haven't seen any evidence of a major data breach. And we also haven't seen any dumping, right? You can't do hacking and dumping in secret, at least not the dumping part. Um, there hasn't been confidential information from the Biden camp or from people, you know, emails filtering out into the public arena. WikiLeaks has been pretty quiet not for obvious reasons. And so I think you can say the most effective thing that they had on their quiver in their arsenal Uh, arrow in their quiver uh, is not at play right now, either because they've hacked, but they're shy of dumping or because they haven't successfully obtained any substantial uh, information, bodies of information. The second possibility, and I think the most menacing one, 
is that they are doing something with state level uh, voter registration rolls or election uh, administration systems. I think this is a real possibility. We know from uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee report that there were some, you know, f- real efforts to probe that last time around. They're clearly interested in it. Uh, that said, I think if there were a significant threat to a given state's uh, uh, actual election administration system, uh, there probably would have been notice to the state in question, and I suspect it would have leaked. And so I think that is most likely not what we're talking about here. And that leaves in broad strokes the category of information operations a la the uh, Internet Research Agency and that sort of uh, information-based electoral interference. So I think it is probably worth assuming that we're dealing with some very aggressive uh, form of that uh, rather than either of the other two. But that's just a surmise on my part. And uh, you know, of course, uh, there's a fourth possibility, which is that it's something else entirely. But I wouldn't want to speculate about what that could be. So I, I actually could think of um, at least one more category that it could be, which is, you know, influence operations or or financial influence operations along the lines of I've forgotten now the name of the red haired, you know, NRA fan. Maria Butina. Maria Butina. Thank you. Butina. And there was this tantalizing hint from Senator Chris Murphy, I think it was, in one of his comments to the press on these on these briefings that aren't, you know, that aren't giving the public sufficient information. He said something like, if there are persons coming into this country to dot, 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 then the public should know about it. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. We, and we can't exclude that possibility. But I still go back to the question that Susan raised, which is, you know, if if more information were made available to the public, what would it be and how useful would it be for the public to know? So, I mean, first of all, there's an assumption in there that there is some specific, clear Russian preference or Russian intent in this interference, other than the obvious eroding our own confidence in our own political system and electoral system. So other than the sort of chaos machine, is there an intent? Do they favor one candidate or the other? Pelosi seemed to be implying that they do. Um, but there may be some operations that they engage in that are that have that as an objective and other operations that don't because their primary intent is simply to make us less confident in our own system and its outcomes. And so, you know, but even if there were direct evidence that, say, some particular Russian information operation were designed to boost Trump and hurt Biden, and you told the public that, what is the public supposed to do? How does that improve the public's confidence in our government, the public's confidence in campaigns? It seems to me that ultimately at the public level, the only remedy for this kind of onslaught is for the public to have its own affirmative confidence in its preferences and why it holds those preferences. So if I'm an individual voter, I should care about the election, decide which candidates I like and the reasons why I like them, and be confident in that. And then I am not going to be swayed by stupid you know, chaos machine info ops from the Russians. And I, you know, and I'm also not going to be bothered by information that comes out about what the Russians are doing. But in the current circumstance, my fear is, I guess, that if the federal government were to say that the Russians are doing this, the Russians are doing that, the Russians are trying to persuade Americans of X, Y, or Z, it's only going to erode public confidence further. It's going to make the problem worse. Now, maybe the, there's just no way out of that. Maybe this is a no-win situation, but I, I'm just not persuaded of the value of more public disclosure, except based on the principle of public disclosure. 
I'll just throw one more log on the speculation fire here, uh, which is that also uh, there's this question about this Kremlin-linked Ukrainian lawyer, Andrei Derkak, who is, I think, suspected of trying to launder derogatory information about Vice President Joe Biden uh, through members of Congress. And and Devin Nunes was reportedly asked about this in a closed-door meeting of the panel, uh, I think, last week. Uh, And pointedly, another member asked him, can you tell us that you have haven't received this information, uh, are you prepared to disclose whether you've received information that call into question public reports from this guy? Uh, and he just didn't respond. So that's kind of the, you know hanging in the wind as well of whether or not you know Ukrainian uh, lawyers linked to Vladimir Putin are trying to launder you know dirt through the Congress or the Republican members of Congress. But just as a point to you know to Tammy's uh, question, and I and I broadly agree with that. I mean, what would the public do? But just to kind of amplify. You know, in 2016, we had the Russians sowing chaos and disinformation. In 2020, you arguably have the president of the United States doing that and and more consistently and forcefully than anything the Russians could have done, where now instead of the Russians, you know, trying to potentially hack into voter databases and, and cause chaos at the polls, you know, you have the president trying to shut down or threatening to shut down mail-in voting and telling people that the election is going to be rigged. Uh, so in a sense, I'd have to just think that Vladimir Putin might just sit back and say, you know, my work here is done. Uh, yeah. And God. just to add to the absolute dumbness of 2020. Uh, apparently, the way the majority and Hipsy learned of this suspicious package that was delivered to Devin Nunes, DHL sent the wrong tracking receipt, uh, sent the tracking receipt to the majority instead Get of the out. minority. Really? <laughs> Dumbest. I mean- Dumbest time ever. That's that's a Veep episode. That's great. Uh, someone's going to use that at some point when we all <laughs> get to, we're all in more of a laughing mood. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, object lessons uh, for something lighter. Susan, why don't you go first? Um, so I have an object lesson, and it is an it is an NPR story and an assignment for all listeners. Um, so the NPR story came out yesterday, um, and it reports that the U.S. Census Bureau has abruptly decided to. End end the, um, the census count by one month. So it will now end on September 30th rather than October 30th as scheduled, um, raising fears of really significant and consequential undercounts occurring. Um, and so the assignment and appropriate response to this on the part of all listeners is go fill out the census. You can still do it online. Um, if you are have already fin- filled out your census and submitted it, um, go find somebody you know who hasn't done it already. Um, this is really, really important stuff. It really matters to basic uh, representation, basic sort of democratic legitimacy. Um, And we can all do our part by taking, it literally took me like two and a half minutes to fill it out. So go pause your podcast and fill it out. Uh, That is good. I filled mine out, gosh, a while ago. It felt good. It was fun to fill out. To be counted. It was easy. It's easy to be counted. Go count your friends. I did it online. It was a blast. Yeah, it's totally fun. And they stopped sending you those damn mailers. I was getting like one. I was getting one like every two days. Like, I'm gonna do it. Like, stop. I'm going. I'm getting to it. Jeez, it's like the census sending me a honeydew list. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> my object, I'll go next this week, is a new book that I've had for uh, for a couple weeks now. Actually, I've been enjoying reading uh, by uh, Stuart Stevens. The book is uh, "It Was All a Lie: How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump." People may know Stuart Stevens whether you've heard him on various podcasts or seen him on TV, but he is sort of a Uh, I guess you'd probably call him one of the most successful Republican campaign operatives and media strategists of his generation, uh, responsible for uh, some losing campaigns, but many more winning ones, probably. Uh, And what's interesting to me about this book is it's not merely sort of in the kind of the in the litany of never Trump books and essays, but it's really trying to diagnose what happened to the Republican Party telling it from the point of view of somebody who helped uh, arguably build the modern Republican Party. Uh, It's an incredibly frank discussion uh, that starts off being very hard on the author. The first line of the book is, I have no one to blame but myself. 
so this is really, I think it's an interesting read, both for the insight, and he's also just an excellent writer and a great talker, uh, but somebody who is essentially writing an indictment of his own career and trying to, in addition to, as he sees it, do a mea culpa, trying to not to do an explanation of exactly how the party, this one of our two major parties, uh, evolved into the current state uh, that it is. Uh, so very timely reading. Uh, it's a quick read and it's a good read. So check it out. Uh, ben. Ever since we started this podcast, lo these many years ago, when we would drink scotch in the middle of the day, we have been besieged by requests from Rational Security listeners for Rational Security Rocks glasses. And faithful listeners, we have heard your cries. The Rational Security Etched Podcast Rocks Glass is now available at thelawfarestore.com. It is beautiful. Uh, it is contains the great logo designed by one Joe DeFeo. It sits there proudly next to the Lawfare etched rocks glasses, and it is just waiting for you all to go to thelawfarestore.com and buy yourself a pair of them to drink scotch along with while wearing your Lawfare socks and writing in your Lawfare notebook with your lawfare pen. So, um <laughs> can you write notes while drinking? That's pretty good. Yeah, and you know, we there's also uh rational security t-shirts and but seriously, this is all about the rocks glasses. I have ordered during the taping of this show, I have ordered four sets and I will be doing in lieu of fun drinking a cocktail out of a rational security glass within a week. And I look forward to you tweeting pictures of yourself drinking scotch or the beverage of your choice out of the rational security etched rocks glass. They are really beautiful. And because I know he's listening, I'm going to tell him right now, Joe, don't worry. Ours are in the mail. They're coming. They're coming. Get the whiskey ready, babe. Uh, but for now, that does it for us. I'm going to go have a drink. Rational Security is, of course, a production of the aforementioned Lawfare. You can find those glasses along with – we may still have some baby grows. We do we have, have baby onesies. Grows. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. At lawfarewhiskeystore.shop. And we've got all the report merch, too, for those Ooh. of you who are fans of the report. You know, it's a good store, the lawfarestore.com. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can also find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do remember to leave a rating and a review, preferably five stars. That would be awesome if you like Lawfare it. Lawfare Corkscrew. Oh, there's a Lawfare Corkscrew even. Wow. Imagine that. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Uh, music this week performed by Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, uh, with uh, unfortunately a poorly timed uh, release by the Department of uh, Cover Songs by the Police called We'll Be Watching You. Nice. It's, it's really, that, and that was the most stalkerish song the police ever did. So it was. Well, wait till you hear Ken Cuccinelli doing Roxanne. You will <laughs> never. It's like next time, don't put it in an intel report. Just retweet it. <laughs> just, it's just, just a tweet. It. Just tweet the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Yan is screaming. Just follow him on Twitter. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.